This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This episode features an interview with Ed McDonald. Ed is the Senior Vice President of Sales for Salesforce Marketing Cloud. He has also held senior sales roles with organizations like Eloqua, Edgar Online, McGraw-Hill, and Reuters. On this episode, Ed talks about how marketers can use data to drive sales marketing alignment, how to combine data and creativity, and why he thinks B2B and B2C marketing functions are converging. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission, and I am joined right across the table from me in the Intercontinental Hotel in Chicago. Ed, what's going on? How are you, Ian? I'm doing really well. This is an exciting episode for me because as someone who has done both sales and marketing, we we had a crazy idea that we should probably bring a sales leader and talk about the relationship between sales and marketing with someone who's been doing this for a long time. We're just thrilled to have you on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. This should be a lot of fun. So you have worked a lot in B2B and have had a long career working with a bunch of different types of folks, but most recently, a lot of CMOs. And one of the things that we really wanted to talk about today is what are some of the things that you're seeing from the field, from CMOs that you're talking to on a daily basis, and how they can engage with their sales leaders in a more effective, more efficient manner? Just kind of off the top, how'd you get into sales? Oh, wow. Uh, I got into sales, uh, started my career early, and I really liked working on the customer side of things. I didn't start in sales. I started more in what the software world would call customer success. And that led me to meeting some great sales leaders. And those sales leaders thought it would be a good idea for me to become a salesperson. And and the rest is, is kind of history and magic. Uh, but it was I, just a deep love of of understanding business problems and and being somebody that can help a customer try to solve that business problem with technology. So my entire career has been in in some some level of technology, and it's always been working through some level of a of a business problem with a great business result on the other side. And so I've worked at companies like Thomson Reuters. I've worked for customers like Standard and Poor's. I started a company called Pivot, which was a technology company that we eventually sold to Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And uh, it was with another great company called Eloqua during the time when we were still pre-Oracle selling marketing automation in its really, really early days. And then I've had a great, great run here at Salesforce. So always in in the customer side of it, always in technology and always having fun. Yeah, it's such an interesting, I love that you started in customer success. That's really exciting because it's one of those things that really grounds you in the day-to-day relationships with actual human beings and especially doing that kind of like in reverse order. That's really interesting. Do you think, what are some of the lessons there that you learned early 
early customer success days that you try to impart when you're talking to marketers? Oh, that's a great question. Um, the things I learned early in my career just around that whole customer success world is, is that technology for most customers is unnatural. Yeah. That what, it, it, it's not that they don't understand that technology is important. And, and God, technology over the past 20 years has been such a rapid advance. But even going back, it's technology to most end users is it's unnatural. It's something that they have to learn. It's something that they need to advance their skill set. And, and I think that is so true today. If you look at marketers today, their biggest challenge isn't technology. There's no shortage of technology in the marketing and advertising technology space. Yeah, that MarTech slide. Have you seen this slide? Yeah, it's where crazy. It's like, it's like it's, 7,800 people, like yeah, yeah, companies. Yeah. All the logos, like yeah. logos match. They're so small that you can't even see them. That's right. They don't have a problem with available technology to solve a problem. They have a challenge with, well, if I buy that technology, who's here that can that will use it, that will understand it, that can implement it, that can drive a business result over it? They have much bigger problems with resources, uh, the way they allocate the, their internal resources, the skill sets that they have inside of their organizations. So that's like part one of the problem. Part two is technology is growing faster than any one human being skill set can grow. And so it's just the ability to keep up with what's available to them. And if I circle back to your question, which was, what did I learn then? I, nothing's changed a lot has changed, but from a perspective of technology needs to be an enabler yeah. of a business process. W what hasn't changed is if, if a company or if a marketer or if somebody's buying technology because they think that's going to solve the problem before they think about the business process that they want to solve or the business problem they're solving, they're going to have a hard time succeeding. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting point. And you know, we talked with we talked to Tracy Eiler about this idea that. When a marketer comes into the organization and they walk up to the salesperson, the sales leader, their counterpart, and they are like, hey, I need to you know, fit into what's going on in the organization, all this sort of stuff, that if there's a disagreement, that the marketer gets fired first, right? And that there's, there's this kind of like dichotomy here. There's sometimes this kind of tension. And we've done a lot of episodes about marketing alignment or sales marketing alignment, but I was really interested on your perspective, especially when CMOs are buying these types of technologies, oftentimes there's a committee doing this, they're partnering with the CIO potentially or the CTO. There's all of these different you know, factors at play, but to really understand what's going on from a sales perspective, you've seen some kind of best practices of CMOs and marketing leaders that have come into organization. What would be your you know, advice to a new CMO or a CMO that's just starting a role in kind of that first 90-day period of how do I go and partner with sales like the right way? Yeah. Uh, one, just big shout out to Tracy. I mean, she's a phenomenal marketer. Uh, she's a, a great customer of ours, and she's doing just some really fun stuff in terms of the way that she's really reinventing marketing for her organization. So I, I love what she's doing. And she's hilarious. So there shout is, out, there shout is that. <laughs> uh, you know, marketers have, uh, my perspective, they are just in probably the most exciting time yeah. right now for, and, and I think it's early in the inflection point, Ian. So there, there's so much more that is going to be available to them in, in terms of reinventing what a quote unquote modern marketer is. And, and, and it's a funny term because I hear that used a lot, modern marketer. Totally. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, I'm sure there's a blog out there called Modern Marketer. Well, <laughs> you know, I got a shout out to uh, Heidi Malin, who is over it at Workfront now. She was the CMO over at Eloqua, and she coined the phrase modern marketing like seven years ago. Yeah, right. And to hear it now being used across the just across the business, just huge shout out to Heidi for for what she was able to accomplish with her team on that. But modern changes like every six months. And so marketers that are starting at a company, while it's super exciting, I also think their job is is hard from a perspective of it's easy to jump in and just try to fix. Yeah. Because that's what marketers are just good at fixing stuff. Like they're really like their brains just go to how do I fix something and and keep moving on to the next thing to fix. And, you know, the advice that I always give them and and, and when I talk to new marketers, it's take a step back. What's, you know, understand from your team, what's working, what's not working and go on a roadshow, talk to folks, talk to your sales organization, talk to the, to the, all the stakeholders, including customers, get deep into why you're winning and why you're losing. So when customers are, yes, oh my God, I have to buy whatever it is you're providing them, product, service, something. Why did you buy it? What were the key factors? When somebody didn't buy from you, why didn't they buy? What was that one thing or two things that they went somewhere else to go and, and and fulfill what they were looking to fulfill? Talk to executives across all the different functional areas in your organization. What is the brand perception internally versus externally? And it, is it reconciled, right? So how do your customers think about you? How do your employees think about you? Are those the same thing? Are you living, are you living your true values? So I think those are all important conversations. So a listening tour to me as, as a new marketer is hugely important. The next thing I would, I, I always guide them towards Ian is understand your data. And when I say understand your data, what are the data inputs as a marketer that you have? So what are the tool sets that are used by your sales organization? Are they actually using them? Is there adoption? Is there not adoption? So do you have a challenge just in, in understanding your first party data that's available to you to market to known customers? What are your strategies for marketing to unknown customers? And what's working? What's not? What are the, what are the data sets? If you're basically just doing website SEO, SEM, and that's kind of it, and that's your, that's your strategy, that's the first place to start looking at, okay, what else is out there and available to us? How are we leveraging walled gardens like Google and Facebook? How are we leveraging other strategies, both social and, and non-social, but all digital to, to drive both unbiased awareness into our organization, but also how do we get more folks to care about what we want them to care about and how do we lead that effort? And so the first 90 days, and I know it's a long answer, oh, this uh, is, is great. Yeah. go on a learning tour, like open mind, beginner's mind, really walk into it as if you know nothing and question every bias and every business as usual and every... Um, for every person in that organization that says, well, that's just the way we've always done it, challenge it like all the way down to the root cause of why is that the way you've always done it? And is that the right way? You may walk out and say that we should do it the way we've always done it because it's working or it's it's something that we have a guardrail against that we can't kind of get through, but approach it in a way that that allows you to be a thought leader inside your own organization. If you're the new CMO, you've earned the right to be at that table. Yeah. And and build your point of view based on all your stakeholders and off of the tool set and the data set that's available to you. Yeah, one of the things, so we we have a uh, um, someone who's a, a guest on this show and they were applying for a CMO role. 
and they kind of had like their playbook of like how they do how they do business. And they went to uh, they applied to this company, and the executive team was kind of like, "Oh, hey, field marketing doesn't report to you. This person does. This doesn't function doesn't report to you. This function doesn't report to you." And they're kind of like. What is marketing doing? Like, what is marketing doing if you don't have all of these functions that that report to you? And they'd been like taken away from their predecessors, and it was kind of one of these aha moments where it's like, number one, if I go to this company, I can't execute my playbook because I don't have the team to do that. So you kind of have to work backwards from like what everything else is going. And then the other piece is convincing them why these should actually be part of marketing, right? Which is a, a whole nother conversation. But do you think that? Like in that type of scenario where you have someone coming in that's kind of done it one way in the past, how do they remain flexible? How do they go in and talk to like the sales team, the sales leaders and say, hey, you know, what would be music to your ears or in in the past in your career? What is music to your ears when a brand new CMO walks in and says, you know, blank? Yeah. Well, first... The one thing I would always say is if, if you're a CMO or a senior level marketer and, and your key functional roles is to partner with sales, and, and I'll use kind of air quotes for everybody out there is on, on the partner side, you really have to just understand the DNA of a salesperson to start and, and realize that we are just really controlling. That's great. <laughs> yes. It's like great we just, point. it's, it's uh, when it comes to owning the revenue engine of an organization, we get really antsy when pieces of the revenue engine may or may not fall in line with us. Great sales leaders, and I know many of them, understand what great partnership across all the different functional areas. You don't want to own it all. Yeah, You want other functions to own responsibilities that influence and enhance and engage with your revenue engine and allow you to have your team focus on the execution of your your revenue engine. But that's hard, like especially when you talk about size of companies and big versus small and startup versus not startup and, and that. So, but going back, understand your sales leader. So through the interview process, so if you're a new CMO and you're coming in, through your interview process, really dig into what is the personality of the sales leadership team? What's the personality of the sales organization? What's the culture of the sales organization? Have an understanding of what that is so that you know you can build a thought process and a thesis for how do I communicate with this organization that is probably coming into it with some level of bias on what marketing does or does not deliver. And I think that's the big challenge that that a lot of new CMOs have, and even CMOs that have been in place and in seat for a long time, is they, they have to get through these bias challenges where if sales leaders haven't seen it done well or have a perception that it hasn't been done well or have a perception of, I worked here and it was amazing and I haven't been able to see that in other places, you kind of have to break through that a little bit 100%. I mean, and I think that a lot of times people just want to know that you're working on the stuff that they're telling you that you want to see worked on. When I was in the military, uh, I was in a job that like historically my predecessors were all really bad. And I would always, my battalion commander would come to me and be like, hey, Ian, could you do this? And I would always have the answer like at the forefront of my mind of like why we couldn't do that thing. And after saying that about 50 times, he was just like, Ian, here's a lesson for you. If this can't be done, like just say, Roger, I'll look into it, leave, 
bring back all the data of like why it can't be done, bring back another solution and then bring that. But I think that it's a good lesson for marketers because a lot of times the sales leader is saying like, I need blank. And the knee jerk answer a lot of times is just like, okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) And it's like, you have to be able to, you have to be able to like clearly articulate the things, like the reasons why you're doing certain things and bring it all the way back to like the impact that it'll make that they specifically told you that they wanted made. And I think that we've talked about before on this podcast about data and how important that is and how that is the currency for the modern marketer. How have you seen data shape those type of conversations? I love this question. And and there's two aspects to it. Anything, any sales leader is always grounded in data. It's the only, like, great sales leaders are data blank, right? Like, we just, we want to understand information. We want to understand trends. We want to understand what, what's, what is the data telling us on what's working, what's not working. And great CMOs out there, and we have one in Stephanie, like they really understand that data drives decision-making. And when you anchor yourself in what's working, what's not working, and think about the channels that CMOs leverage, they're living in an unknown data world. So how are we converting unknown data to known data? Yeah. Like that is just, that's a, there's a lot underneath that, that, that is not a simple, that there, there's nothing simple about getting people that don't know you to know you. That is a a huge part of the top of the top of the engagement funnel that has to really be thought through. So how are we doing that? Once we do know them, how are we orchestrating an experience with with that known user to know more about us, buy more from us, do something more with us, whether that's buy for the first time, buy for the second time, come to an event? Like there's so many different things that marketers are going to try to do with their known universe of data. And so coming to a sales leader and saying, here's the campaign, here's the program, here's where we're making investments with our dollars, with the end outcome being X. And in a traditional B2B product service world, X should always be some level of, here's how we're generating top of funnel pipeline for your team to be able to go out there and convert mid funnel down. I'm using funnel in a very broad term, and and this is not because I... I heard Tracy say this recently, and I think it is, it's not an MQL to SQL thing anymore, right? Yeah, like totally. It's, that, that, that's not, but it is understanding how you move somebody from they don't know you to they do know you to they want to buy from you to they want to buy from you again. Yep. Sometimes it is that simple in, in terms of what we're trying to solve. And I think it's just important for marketers to come with a data-driven approach from a perspective of, here's what we're trying to accomplish with this campaign, with this event, with this, it's, it's, we have moved into a world where I think everybody around the revenue engine has to be much more intentional yeah. than they ever were before. Totally. We've, and we've talked with, with CMOs on this podcast in the past about something like a, let's just say a big billboard, for example, these big investments that they make, potentially a very big investment, that is something that literally will get you fired. If if it's a bad campaign, it can get you fired because it's the thing that, hey, your CEO drives by it every day on whatever highway you're near. And they see it every single day. And they're like, why did we choose those three words or whatever it is? And so if you're the CMO that goes to the SVP of sales, like yourself, you're already thinking all of these things, right? Like you're already, and you don't even want to have to ask the question to the person of like, hey, why did we do this? But instead, if that person's bringing you saying, 
the reason why we did this billboard is because we've been running, you know, we ran like 7 million display ads that we split tested over the past six months. This exact phrase resonates with the most people that drives them to then like, you know, search on Google for this exact thing. That's the reason why we did it. Plus like this is the, you know, pipeline attributed or, or whatever the thing is. There's some level of sophistication there that the person, maybe they disagree with the method or the way that the money was spent, but they trust that you are working to figure it out, that this was an experiment worth running to drive Legion. It's an, it's an interesting way that you described it, Ian. And this is where marketers like a, a Cat Frederick over a ticket master, this is the way she thinks mm-hmm. about it, right? Which is how do I create intentionality with working with my key stakeholders, whether that's sales, whether that's product and, you know, yep. and, and Ticketmaster has both of those types of avenues, but it's, I'm going to go spend some money on something. Yeah. And that money's being spent in a way that we've done some level of scenario planning and scenario testing. We have a thesis. Here's what our thesis says. Here's how much of the investment is as a percentage of the rest of the budget dollars. Yep. And here's how big of a bet we're making. And then it's a, it, that's a great collaboration for any sales and marketing leader to have, which is, hey, we want to go spend X amount of money and X amount of money represents X amount of our budget, right? So we're going to go spend 3% of the digital budget to go run airport ads. Mm-hmm. Because what we found in, in all of our testing is that business executives tend to see this phrase. And if they see that more when they are literally on the, the moving escalator, that they are more likely to then go search for that on their mobile phone. And so Mm -hmm. what we want to do is have a mobile experience so that when they see the ad, it's mobily digitized and and mobile friendly. And so there's some thought process on, okay, how much pipeline, Mr. or Mrs. Marketer, do you think that that is going to drive for us? Here's our indication. If we spend this much money, we believe we'll get this much pipeline. Great. What is the timeframe you're going to do that against? Six months. Okay, so this is an expense over six months. Within those six months, how often are we going to measure it? We're going to measure it X amount of times to know if it's working, if it's not working, and if we need to surge or if we need to depreciate the the investment. Great. Those are amazing conversations. And I'm lucky enough to have a lot of those conversations with my business partners. It's the customers that, that start to understand. It's not just layering data, Ian. It's also, if I'm going to make a bet, how much is that bet? And what can you expect that bet to deliver? But also being, I go back to the beginner's mind comment that I had, the best marketers are ones that come to the table very quickly and say, hey, made a bet. It's really working. We think we should do more of it. Or, hey, it's not working. Are you okay if we pump this thing down and do something different? I forget who it was. Somebody on on the podcast made the recommendation like in the first 90 days, basically like focus on one campaign that you can guarantee will get attribution a campaign that you can have like wired tight attribution that you know. And so, and this is more, I guess, actually it's not necessarily B2B lesson. It's, it's probably both B2B and B2C, but it's something that you can go and be like, I know how to run this type of campaign. It fits into the playbook. It fits into exactly what you told me that you wanted as a sales result, whatever that sales result is. And executed flawlessly. We got a really good amount of data on this and now it informs like future spend. And we need to do a lot of that, right? I think sometimes that sales leaders and marketing leaders together are trying to think about what is the big next bet or what's the big next thing. Sometimes blocking and tackling works too. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a really good balance behind. We know these campaigns work because we have history, we have data, we have results that prove that over time, these hold a consistent level 
within some level of a variance of working. If we spend this much money on, I'll use a B2C example. We know, and and I'm using B2C crudely here, but (laughs) we know that birthday campaigns work. Yeah, totally. It's your birthday. I'm going to send you a coupon. The chances of you executing against that coupon deliver a very predictable result. Yeah. They should never stop doing that. Totally. (laughs) And the same translates into B2B in many different types of campaigns. We know that this type of event works. Keep running the event. Keep promoting it the way you promote it. Keep driving the right participation based on the way you drive it. I think where marketers and sales leaders drive a different and better collaboration is not focusing on on what we know works and what we should keep doing. It's saying, hey, we've got 20% of our budget and we could go do anything with it. Yep. What are those? Like, let's sit in a room and whiteboard that for an afternoon on where we can invest this. And maybe you come up with, we're going to invest the whole thing in one thing. Chances are you come up with, let's go try these five things. Yeah. So it's funny, Beth Comstock has kind of like her her model for this. And I, I, I believe it was basically like 70% is continue blocking and tackling. 20% is like basically like data-driven experiments. And then 10% is like, and now for something completely different, total experiment off the wall based off of like a thesis that you believe that's a bet that, and I forget the exact person who said that that 10% of like set aside is if it works, tell me it worked. If it didn't work, basically draw the lessons out. I don't need to know ahead of time where you're spending it or something like that. But it gives the autonomy to the marketer to test crazy ideas because sometimes crazy ideas yield the entire rest of the budget combined, you know? Well, and it's it brings me to just another thought, Ian, which is the thing that that I appreciate about marketers and, and sometimes I think gets lost is they are the most creative yeah. people on the planet. And data-driven has to be a key, key pivot that everybody makes but it can't be only that. You have to make sure that the beginner's mind, that we continue to let marketers unlock their creative their creative passions because that's what drives best ideas. It's not, data will always inform you, but data can't be the only thing that informs us. We have to be able to test and try and have fun. And I work with, uh, uh, you ever hear of Fanatics? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, talk about the most fun marketing team that you could ever, if you're a sports person, yeah. that's the most fun thing, right? I'll talk to the team down there and it's like, so how did you guys think about your last campaign? They're like, oh my God, we got in a room and we talked about the Super Bowl and what can we launch against the Super Bowl and how fast can we do it? And are we ready to go? And they do so well because they're so creative about the event. Yeah. And they care about it. right? And they care about it. And that's why they've driven the success that they've driven, which is so much fun to watch, but it's because they're creative and because they let creative be their design principle versus not just data. They are data fanatics. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point because I think a lot of times we as marketers want to be at the cutting edge of like a lot of these new things and there's huge margins on the cutting edge, right? Like you can, um, you know, the folks who are earliest like YouTube ads or Twitter ads or Facebook ads, there was huge or Snapchat ads were super popular because they were ridiculously cheap. And you see, and you want to be able to like test in those, in those kind of markets, but you don't want to be the, the marketer that's like, you know, you can AB test yourself into, Eric Reese has a word for it that I won't <laughs> say, but you can AB your test, AB test yourself into some trouble. And I think that 
you know, for people who want to be creative, like there, there has to be creative constraints on those things. There yeah. has to be, you know, and us at the mission as a company that does a lot of writing and all of this creative work, it's like there needs to be brackets on this stuff because if there's not then you're just you could oh there's always something like bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger that you get until you get like the Godzilla movie and nobody watches it and and, and that goes just back to be intentional when I speak with marketers when I speak with with any customers it's what's the intentionality of what you're trying to accomplish you should be creative within that but it, it has to drive to some business result and that's where I think as, as I look at just marketers across the spectrum, whether it's they're direct to consumer, whether they are direct to an account, like whatever they're trying to accomplish, be very intentional about what you want the business result to be and then work backwards. And when you work backwards, you'll get very creative about different ways to go and accomplish that result, but be intentional about what you want the business result to be. And in any marketing and sales relationship, that intentionality is what drives trust. Yeah, let's get, I mean, let's get into some of, some of that because I think that What's so interesting now is you have in the B2B and B2C landscape, you have these B2B companies that now have to add a B2C component sure. of their business, which is a huge challenge for CMOs because a lot of times they're not structured for that or they don't have the team for that. And now they have to reallocate budget for that. And a lot of times it's going to come from the B2B budget, obviously. How do you see this kind of like shift from companies that have to do that? I have a lot of thoughts on this. So if you need me to pause at any point, please let me know. Oh no, fire away. Um, I don't think companies think in terms of B2C or B2B anymore. There's not a single cut. There's not a single marketer that I've spoken to in the past year and a half that has said to me, I'm a B2B marketer or I'm a B2C marketer. Yeah. That's just, they don't think of them. They, they think of themselves as marketers. And it's funny. We have people that reach out to us about the podcast that say the same thing, especially like brand marketer versus digital marketer versus these sort of things. They're like, do, wait, do I have to be one? Like, yeah. is it? Can I <laughs> but, just be a marketer? Yeah, yeah, right. But think about a company, you go to a gym. I do indeed. Yeah. And you use gym equipment, right? So they have ellipticals and bikes and treadmills and all that good stuff that I mean, exists Obviously, there. you're sitting in front of me. You can tell I go to the gym. Let's be real. Did you ever work out at home too? Uh, you know, I, I, I dabble every now and then. Yeah. You know? So th- just think about the universe of fitness at this point. And for many, many years, if you wanted to get a great workout and you either ran outside or did what you had to do kind of on your own, or you went to a gym and in that gym, they had this full managed service for you, which was machines and weights and, and locker rooms and all of that. And then people got busy. And especially as, as you get, as you get more mature in your, in your current lifestyle, kids and all that, you're competing against time at that point, right? So if you are the equipment manufacturer of that gym equipment, like a, um, I don't even know the names of some of these, but like a lifestyle. Life, yeah, yeah, lifestyle, like, yeah. They sell to, and so I'm a I'm an East Coaster, so they sell to Equinox. Yeah. Or they sell to New York Sports, or they sell to 24-Hour Fitness or Retro Fitness. Yep. Whatever that gym company or fitness company is, that's who they've been selling to for years. But now- Like highly sales-driven relationship. It is a B2B sale, traditional B2B sale. They are selling to the Equinox company. You should buy my gym equipment over- this person's gym equipment because it's faster, better, stronger, right? Like whatever it is, you're selling and, and we're going to give you the, the right rates and we're going we're gonna to service it and we're going to put the right package against you using our gym equipment versus somebody else's. Well, now you have Peloton and SoulCycle and more apps than you know what to do with that can drive some level of a fitness activity. And so you're now competing. If you're lifestyle fitness, you are now competing against a market 
that you traditionally have never competed in. That is 100% digital. So just, just put that out there. So now you have to figure out, wow, how do I continue to sell a lot of equipment to gyms? It's not like gyms are going away, but I, I still need to make sure that we have great relationships with all of our fitness center providers and we need to keep selling a lot of gym equipment to them. But Ed McDonald, well, he likes his Peloton and he goes down to his basement and he hits that Peloton whenever he can, right? Maybe he wants to get a treadmill. Yep. Maybe he wants an elliptical machine to balance out that workout. And or maybe his fr- or maybe his friend doesn't like biking. So he's talking to his friends like, man, my Peloton is freaking great. I use this thing every day. And then you're like, well, I hate biking. You're like, maybe you should get a treadmill. That's right. And so where do you go get that? Right. So you go and you Google it treadmill and you come up to like Dick's Sporting Good and you go buy that treadmill. Or if you're a higher end elliptical, like a lifestyle, maybe you want to get inside of that search. Maybe you want to start thinking digital first on how you market your equipment to the home buyer because you realize that that is the exploding market much more so than gym memberships. And if you're a marketer now, you have to think about how do I market to an account? How do I market to Equinox so that Equinox buys more of my stuff? But how do I market to Ed? What does that look like? And I guarantee you walk into a company like that or other equipment manufacturers, and they have to think, I'm not getting new resources. I'm not getting new money, right? I have to figure out how to go do this with what we have. And I need to figure out what technology helps enable that for me. And what are the, do I need to rethink about my org structure? Do I need to think, rethink about my budget structure? Do I need to rethink, um, how do I allocate digital versus not digital? Do I need to think more about billboards and TV that I did before? And those are really complex like it's just, it's so much more complex for for most of these companies today because that's just one example. Yeah, and and those and those companies are building a digital only experience, right? So Peloton, man, they're getting getting a lot of love from us today. Um, <laughs> by the way, the whole Peloton thing is so funny to me because it's like what's old is always new again. And man, Bowflex did the same exact. Sure. thing, but now Peloton has like actual cut. They have a relationship with the customer in a way that like Bowflex never did because you just bought it off of the TV or, or whatever it is. And it's so important to have that relationship. But it's interesting because when you're building that relationship, there's a power there that I think a lot of times uh, marketers don't realize they have, which is this B2B skill set, which is like the customer relationships and how you do customer success and how you think about making people happy and how you think about multiple stakeholders. You know, there's a stakeholder in that in that house too. It's the husband, it's the spouse, it's the kids, it's the, you know, whoever's the kid who's away at college, whose room that that Peloton's going to sit in or, yeah. or whatever it is. And I think that there's an advantage there that you have this you have a team that's set up to a lot of times create relationships and those lessons of how it feels to do that is stuff that you can, you can translate really well, but you have to have a flawless digital experience. The thing is, you know, who else probably wants a flawless digital experience is the B2B person you're selling to as well. I mean, yes, a lot of times they want to get on the phone with a human being and talk through their problems. But if you can create a situation where they can buy all of that online as well, uh, and you didn't have that in the past, it's a great opportunity to do both. Oh, I, I, I think that any B2B company needs to think about what does automated selling look like? Yeah. For, for whatever piece of their quote unquote stack that they have, like how do they create efficiencies in their cost of sales to not have it be so high human touch? And, and how do you get higher productivity out of your 
high human touch, right? That that's kind of how it's how I always think about it, which is how, and there's such a proliferation of inside sales versus field sales. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and tools, the proliferation of tools around inside selling is unbelievable. At this yeah. Point. I mean, I think that that's one of the, one of the really clear delineations that we've seen recently is the person who the door to door, the classic door to door salesperson that is actually walking around and like, cold walking into buildings for you can't even get into like buildings anymore. So <laughs> you pr- probably shouldn't be selling that way. Anyways, that is happening a lot. Still, there's a lot of that stuff that goes on. Not without any, not with any success though. Yeah, exactly. So what are you seeing from this, like the rise of the inside sales organization? Because ultimately that the relationship with marketing and inside sales is really the, the tip of the spirits as critical as it gets. Yeah. Especially in considered purchase, right? Yeah. Just a different way of saying B2B. It's if you have a considered purchase sale, whether that's a product or a service, it is imperative for the marketer to understand that channel from a perspective of what tools will drive lift, what campaigns drive lift, what channels drive lift, right? So really what you have to think about it from all aspects is, okay, how much can I help that inside sales team from my web, from the web experience, from our digital experience that then funnels highly qualified leads for lack of a better term like how are we how are we improving the lead quality that we drive and and it's almost you have to think about it not just from a quantity perspective anymore it was so easy for marketers back in the day to say hey we're tossing a ton of leads into the top of the funnel yeah right like if i had a dollar for every time i heard that one in the day it's really about what's the quality that we're driving so that the probability of conversion is improved upon. And that's how in an inside sales world, what you want to do is create the highest maximum efficiency of that channel. And they are they are a channel. That inside sales organization is a channel. So what do they need in order to drive increased productivity? They need a higher qualified lead so that you can get them on and off, in and out of a cycle faster than what you would traditionally do in a field sales Yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, lead scoring in general is one of the hottest topics out there. And especially with that addition of AI and a lot of the things out there. But you have things like somebody unsubscribing from an email newsletter because they're like, they get 50,000 emails a day now. So they're just like, hey, I just don't want to, I want to unsubscribe for this email. Things like that, which are things you just never had to deal with. It was like, hey, is that person actually not engaged? And Ultimately, that comes down to whoever that that rep is of of saying like, no, they're just probably sick of getting emails because I'm I'm emailing them and yeah. that person just you know unsubscribed because they probably get a thousand emails. So that then you have to back into what is our engagement strategy? Totally. And engagement strategy has a lot to do with content. What is our content strategy? What type of content do we want our uh, do we want the end person to to get from us? And is that in an email? And do they see the same thing when they go on Twitter? And are they seeing the same thing when they pop up in Google, right? So are you serving up content in a way that is, that's relevant to what I may be thinking of, not thinking of? Some of this can get creepy, by the way, because- Oh, 100%. Um, and, and we've all experienced it where I think I've said something at a get together and all of a sudden that something is in my Instagram feed and that's a little weird, but it does happen. Peloton's going to be sending me ads for right and left. <laughs> but that engagement, just that engagement strategy has to be really dialed in because it's no longer just put five emails in somebody's inbox in six days and hope that they convert on one of those emails. Yeah, it has to be thoughtful. It has to be that really, really dialed in conversations that are meaningful. 
And are you enhancing that experience cross-channel? Because if I'm only seeing it in email, it's not enough. So when you serve up content over email and that same content is then repurposed into walled gardens like Google and Facebook, you see a 22 to 26% lift in conversion if you're repurposing same content in multi-channel experiences. We do. I mean, uh, that's, I mean, we're a media company, so we do that uh, (laughs) all the time. But yeah, that's one of the things that we have, uh, we've noticed with some of our writing and podcasting and social and all of this, like people, people opt into the way that they consume content. And for a lot of the people where podcasting is, you know, becoming exponentially popular, more popular by the day that the idea of, this is a quick tangent, but, um, (laughs) but it's important for, for our listeners, I think, because we've seen a lot of this stuff where people will have an article that just, that is basically, you know, seven lessons where Ed talks about how marketers can look at sales. And, you know, maybe it's a thousand words, 1200 words, whatever. The actual length of the article and these sort of things sometimes don't matter as much as people think. Like we all thought that like, oh, we, every article needs to be 500 words. Like that's not actually true. We were publishing articles that are 63 minute reads, stuff like that. The people who want that stuff will, will read in that way. And then there's people who self-select into like, I just want to listen to Ed talk. So there's an option for me to do that because I can't sit on my phone at work and read this, you know, article for 12 minutes, but I can throw my, you know, AirPods on and I can listen to this conversation while I'm working and have a much more flawless experience and, and, and learn this information. And then I can go back later on and look at the show notes or the article or whatever and, you know, cut and paste something and send it to send it to my friend or my team. And I think that that's the type of stuff, those multi-channel experiences that you can do as a marketer where it's the email, the drip campaign, or that thing informs a larger conversation that you're having across multiple channels and let people self-select into what they want. That's right. And, and said, said a a little differently, Ian, be digital first. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Because if you're digital first, and we see this in our own sales enablement, because what you just said is every salesperson that I have working for me, sometimes I want to subscribe into content to learn about it on a podcast. Sometimes I want to subscribe on reading a white paper. Sometimes I want to subscribe in an internal collaboration tool and, and read about it. Sometimes I'm on a webinar. All of them are viable. Yep. And I think that's just where we're at as a professional society today is make it easy for me to consume content. And in your customer, like when I say your customers, meaning marketers, customers think the same way, make it easy for me to consume content and opt into how do I learn more about you, your experience, the experience you're going to deliver to me, your brand, your product, your service, the companies that make that easy. I know we're picking on Peloton a little bit, but they've made that easy. Oh no, hundred percent. Right. And, And there's something there because they're digital first. They've made it easy to learn about them. I happen to be an avid customer of Peloton. So it's easy to talk about them. Although my bike, the picture of my bike looks nothing like the picture in the commercials. It's not in your, (laughs) it's not in your, your kitchen uh, overlooking your Manhattan uh, loft. No, it, it, it does not exist there. I have to crawl over things to get to it sometimes. That's how buried it is in the back room. My legs Uh, look great Peloton. I don't need it. um, But it's how are you digital first? And are you allowing people to consume the content you want that that you believe to be most important to them in ways that they can consume it easily. I think that's a big lesson for marketers that I see today. I love it. Are you ready for the lightning round? Lightning round it is. Fast and easy questions, just like Pardot. Fast <laughs> and easy. Uh, thanks for the plug. Yeah. 
Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Uh, PGATour.com because I love fantasy golf and that's the nice. one that's most fun to me right now. Any uh, Tiger thoughts? Ooh, um, he's going to definitely win at least another two majors in the next three years. You're the man. I love it. I'm in. I'm here for it. I've went, I went to the Masters one time, didn't actually go. I just went to hang out in Augusta. It's a great place. Shout out to our Georgia, Georgia fans sitting in the <laughs> audience right now and at, at the end of the table. What was the worst business advice you ever got? Stay business as usual and don't try to be creative. It wasn't said exactly that way, but ultimately I worked for an organization that had a, a struggle with doing things differently. And the worst advice all up and down the chain was don't try to be different. Just do what we basically tell you to yeah, do. Yeah, do what we tell you to do. Yeah. What is the ad campaign that you've seen recently where you're like, man, that's that's pretty good? The Geico release, re-releasing all the old commercials has just been phenomenal. I mean, seeing the camel on on hump day yeah. has been just so much fun. Peloton, I'll go back to Peloton, like their ad campaign and the way that they bring that back to digital and easy to me is, has, it's got to wake up every marketer out there for how should they think about bringing their, and TV might not be an option. So, but, but it's, how do they think about creating excitement and a community the way they've done it to me is pretty impressive. There was a study done and I forget, I think it was about Dos Equis, about the most interesting man in the world campaign when, when they like sunsetted it, where sunset it, uh, <laughs> Uh, set the sun on it. They basically looked at how long that campaign ran and like how popular it was. And when people started like, re- like realizing like this is really, really funny and, and enjoying it. And basically the results of it were that it should have run for like another 10 years. They're like, they ne- should have never changed it. Never. That it was just doing so well. There's like, should have never changed it. But it's like, you know, on to the next thing. And like, you know, we're going to do something else. Yeah, should have backed up the dump truck to that, to that guy. <laughs> Where's he at? We'll get him on the podcast. Most interesting man in the world. What do you do for fun? Uh, all kids. So I have a 10 year old son. So right now the most fun I'm having is trying to beat him in NBA 2K on the Nintendo <laughs> switch. Nice. That is probably like at the height of fun right now. I feel like back in the day it was like, Oh, can I beat my dad in basketball? And now it's like, man, my kid can beat me in, uh, in, you know, at pretty yeah. much every video. Game. I, 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 know, I, I recently won and literally marched around the house with like my hands up in the air because <laughs> I finally beat him. He's 10. <laughs> Where do you, do you live on the East coast? I do. I live in New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. Great. What's your favorite one day getaway in New Jersey? Cape May. Oh, I don't know that. All day long. Cape May is the southernmost tip of New Jersey. So it's the very bottom of the shoreline, sits on a peninsula, white sand beaches, old Victorian houses, a place called Congress Hall where three presidents have stayed. And it's just, it is a magical place. I love it. Anything else? Any, anything we missed? Oh, I, you probably missed a whole lot of stuff, but uh, <laughs> um, no, this has, been a, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. 
The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.